Well, good morning. Uh, about six minutes ago, I was informed that uh, Pastor Steve was on vacation and that I had this room today. So uh, my name is John Adamson. For those of you who haven't met me, I just started I just started teaching the book of Hebrews over in rooms 160, and uh, we just did an introduction two weeks ago. So this morning, we're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and I do have an outline for what we're doing, but I made it for that class, not for this class, and they're making some copies, so we'll get them to you as soon as we can. So any, at any rate, that's what, that's what we're going to be doing this morning. As we come to, perhaps for this class, we need to do just a little bit of backdrop. As we come into the book of, uh, book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is somewhat unique. Uh, the only other book that begins like it is 1 John in which that uh, the author doesn't identify himself. Uh, he doesn't identify who he's writing to. In other words, it doesn't say um, the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. It doesn't say something like that. It just, it just launches right into uh, uh, to the text. Uh, and it uh, doesn't tell us uh, what the destination was. Uh, none of those kinds of things that are normal salutation or uh, greetings are found in uh, are found in this particular book, so it kind of leaves us uh, with some questions as to who, what, where, when, that kind of thing. Uh, basically, uh, I told the class there's a number of people that are suggested as the author, and uh, uh, if you have a King James, they're going to tell you it was Paul emphatically. Uh, it probably wasn't because it's a second generation Christian that wrote the book. It says so in the book, and. Uh, uh, um, uh, I think the best route to go is with origin that God knows who wrote the book and he didn't tell us. That's pretty much the, the bottom line. It's obviously written to the Hebrews. It's probably written to Greek Hebrews because all the translations in this book or all the Old Testament, excuse me, all the Old Testament references in this book come from the Septuagint. Um, so it's probably written to Hebrews who lived in the Greek, in the in the Greek, in the Romo-Grecian Grecian world, is probably um, uh, how we should how we should understand it. It's obviously written to Hebrews. All the all of the all of the the things that he's going to talk about, all the examples he's going to give, all the things he's going to discuss, are very much part of the Judaistic system. And basically, the theme of this book is Christ is better than everything. That's, that's the theme of this book. That's what he's going to set out to prove. So this morning, as we, as we come to this book, <clears throat> obviously it is to Hebrews, it is to Hebrew people, uh, and, it, uh, and it begins, and it just begins simply with, in fact, if you have, an NI, uh, if you have a, 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 a King James or, a, or an NASB, the first word in the text is God. Uh, in, in the EBS and, and, uh, and in some other books, they, they start out long ago and then they go on. But the subject matter is God. That's what it's, gonna, that's what it's talking about here. He's going to talk about what God has done through Christ. That's, that's, that's the, the essence that is going to come out in this book. Um, in fact, uh, um, the idea here is that God spoke to us. That's, that's the first thing this author wants to know. God spoke. He spoke to us. Um, I know when I was, one of my classes, when I was in seminary, one of the first things one of the systematic theology profs asked is, what's the Bible about? You know, and people come up with all kinds of answers. Oh, it's 
about salvation. It's about this. It's about that. You know what the Bible's about? It's very simply God. It's the self-revelation of God. That's what the Bible is. And Hebrews shows that, and it shows it in the Son. That's what, that's what, he, what he's going to do as he goes through this book. He moves through, he moves through the book, uh, and he presents Christ as better. That's what he does. Christ is better. He's better than all the, anything else the world has ever had to offer. He's totally better than the entire Judaistic system, which is what he's trying to convince these, these Hebrews of. Now, verses 1 through 4 is a single sentence in the Greek. It's one great big long sentence is, is, uh, uh, is what it is. And it, uh, it, uh, it's designed, or, or, or basically it's, it's, a, it's a clear, uh, clear it, it, it gives a clear distinction between the old revelation that was spoken through the prophets and the new revelation which was completed in the Son, the Old and New Testaments. That's what, it's, that's what, he's, what he's going to discuss up front. Uh, the passage speaks to the Son as being better than the prophets, better in his person, better in his work, better in his name. And, and uh, just uh, kind of as a comparison verse, verses, I want to look at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, where John said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and, at, without, <clears throat> and without him was nothing, uh, was, was not anything that was made made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Uh, that's kind of the way this book is going to begin. Romans 1, verses, uh, uh, verses 2 through 7, uh, tells us this. Which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And when we come to Hebrews, he simply says, Long ago and in many ways, and in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by the Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of, his glo- of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of majesty, having become much superior to the angels, as, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So we're going to be looking this morning then at, at uh, Christ in relationship to the prophets, his person, his work, and his name. And before we do, I want to take a moment and just open in, open in a word of prayer. Lord God, this morning as we, uh, as we come to this text, we would just ask that uh, you by your spirit would just open our minds to, to digest that which you have to have for us this morning. Uh, that we would see the glory of Jesus and the glory of you, the Father, in him as is expressed in these words, that we would understand that this is your revelation of yourself through the Son to us, your people. And Father, we would thank you this morning for this, this group that is here together, uh, that is gathered here this morning. We thank you that Pastor Steve has some time off to, 
to uh, be refreshed and renewed. And we ask, Lord, that you would just bless us this morning and you would bless your word and, uh, and you would give us uh, the grace uh, to serve you all the better. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I'm a little bit uh, taken back this morning because uh, I, I got a six-minute warning that, uh, that I was going to be in here this morning. And so uh, uh, this is a little bit different room from that one over there. So at any rate, uh, uh, bear with me. <laughs> if you will. So as we uh, come to the text this morning, we're going to look first of all at verse 1, and we're going to see that Christ is better than the prophets. And uh, here uh, the subject begins with God. Uh, that's what it begins with. It's, 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 t- it's talking about what God did. It's talking about an active God, a God who is not passive, a God who is involved in, in his creation, a God that is involved in the universe, and his involvement here is that he spoke. Uh, I think that's kind of a powerful statement. Incidentally, just, just uh, by, uh, there are guys who do this. I didn't do it, but some, some guy did. Uh, he counted up how many times the name God is used in this text. 68 times. He said that comes out to once every 73 words. I think God is a major subject in this book. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a powerful statement. Uh, this book begins out and it says, it says that, that God spoke. Uh, he spoke to us. He, he had something to say to you and me, and, that, and, he, and he had it recorded in this book. Uh, Genesis 1 tells us, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, and once again, here in Hebrews, he says, God, that's the subject matter, God. It's his activity. It's what he has done. It's what he has ordained. That's what he's bringing to light here. He says God spoke. The reality that we, we serve an active God. There are those who propose that uh, God created the universe and then just let it run. No, that's not what this says. God is intimately involved in the ongoing activities of things. And then he says, in his speaking, and he's talking about his speaking in the time of the prophets here. He says, in his speaking, long ago, at, a, at an earlier time than when Hebrews was written. He's saying at an earlier time, and in many ways, so in times and in ways, God spoke. And he, he, he talks about these, and, and, and if we go through the Old Testament, we can see that, that God did that. He didn't always use the same method. He wasn't stuck in a rut. He had various ways he spoke to men. For example... With Moses, he spoke in a burning bush, Exodus 3. With Elijah, it was a small, still voice, 1 Kings, um, uh, 1 Kings uh, 19. With Isaiah, it was a vision in the temple, 6-1. And the one that kind of tickles me is Amos. He talk, spoke to him in a basket of fruit. Amos 8-1. He spoke in Ur of the Chaldees. He spoke in Haran. He spoke in, um, in Canaan. He spoke in Egypt. He spoke in Babylon. He spoke through visions. He spoke through dreams. He used angels. The Urim and the Thurim. He used symbols. He used events. He used fire. He used smoke. But he spoke. And he spoke in 
very different ways. There was a variety. It was not always the same. It wasn't always the same place. It wasn't always the same time. And it always, and it wasn't the same way. And it kind of brings us to the point that you need to understand that God didn't get a big dump truck and load it full of all the theology and all the stuff he wanted you to know, and he backed it up and dumped it. He progressively gave the revelation. Over a period of time, he let us know him. And that's what he's doing here. He's telling you about himself. He's giving you a glimpse of God. Now, obviously, none of us in this life are going to be able to comprehend it all. We saw a lot more of it last week. I can understand why Pastor Steve needed a break. The whole book of Revelations in the day, I'm still boggled by that. But at any rate, at any rate, God spoke, and he spoke in all these different ways and all these different manners, and he did it over a a long period of time, and he, he revealed himself. And he says that with, the focus here is the Old Testament. That was in the past. It was to the prophets, uh, to our fathers, he says. The past here doesn't mean formerly. It means of days. Older days is the idea uh, behind this word, of old. You know, what, did, what God did, he did in the older days is the idea here. It's not that it was just, he did it and it was done. It was this is something that happened some time ago. That, that's the idea here. And then he says that he spoke to our fathers. And the, <clears throat> the general consensus here is that uh, this word doesn't mean the patriarchs. It means forefathers. He means he spoke to all the Old Testament believers in these ways. That it was given out to them. Uh, that those who preceded us are, are the idea here that he's, that he's explaining. And then he goes on, and he goes on to say, through the prophets, and likely we should take this to expand just a little bit beyond the canonical prophets. It includes, it includes the books of history. It includes the books of poetry. Uh, along with the prophets, it includes men like Abraham, men through whom God spoke, and men who God spoke to is, is kind of the idea that should be expressed here. So the first thing he wants us to know is that in the past, in the days of old, in various ways and at various times, God spoke. That's, that's the thrust of this first, this first verse. And the thrust is on God himself. God did this. Secondly, he goes on to talk about Christ is, Christ is, is better in his person. And he says, he goes to verse 2, and in verse 2 he tells us, he tells us, But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, who he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. Starts out, but in these last days, not necessarily in opposed to the former days, but now in these days, this would be the time of the New Testament, of course. They're kind of old days to us now, but they were new when this was being written. So he's saying, but now in these last days, he has spoken to us by the Son. Literally, uh, last days is of the last days, or on the last days. And uh, it's, uh, it's a term that's used in a number of ways in, in Scripture. It, it, it has a very technical term speaking to 
what we discussed at great length last week, uh, but it, uh, it also has uh, another concept. And the concept that's being used here, given this is a book to the Hebrews, would be the rather Jewish concept of the last days, which basically would mean in the age of Messiah, in the days of Messiah. And you understand that the last days, in a very real sense, began when Jesus comes and terminates when he comes back. Uh, that's the age of Messiah. It, it covers all of that. So what they're talking about here is the time from whence Jesus came. Uh, that's, that's the last days they're talking about, uh, about here. They're talking about the messianic age, the time of Messiah, is the, kind of the idea that he wants us to understand here. Uh, you understand the Old Testament age ended when Jesus came. It, it came to a conclusion. Uh, the New Testament, the age of Messiah, began now at that point. John the Baptist, although he's in the New Testament, was the last Old Testament prophet. He fulfilled the last of the Old Testament by being the forerunner, telling us the Messiah was coming. And when the Messiah came, he said, I must step back. It's him. We have, that's my paraphrase. But anyway, that's, that's what he said here. Uh, so it says, he says, he says here, this is the age that has come. The messianic age is now here. It's now through the Son uh, that God speaks to us. In verse 1, he told us that uh, he told us how he spoke. He did it in many times and in many ways. He told us when he spoke. He did it in the past. He told us to whom? To our forefathers. And he told us through whom or by whom. And he said the prophets. It's interesting in verse 2, he tells us to whom he spoke or by whom he spoke. It was the son to whom he spoke. It's us. And he says when he spoke, he says in the last days, but he doesn't tell us how. Well, it's inferred because it's a son speaking. It's all from him now. He takes center point on the stage. Uh, That's going to be the focal point. Because what he's saying here, in effect, is now the son has come, and he far exceeds the prophets. He's better than. In fact, this word word better runs throughout throughout the the entire book of, of, uh, of Hebrews. He says, so he's better than. He, he's a, he, he takes it farther. It's improved upon. It doesn't mean that the Old Testament is invalid. It just means that now it is being fulfilled. That's, that's, that's the idea here. Uh, he points to the revelation as being unique, of being final. It has a completeness in the Son. He's the Word of God that became flesh. John 1.14 And the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's what he's saying here. He's he's the one. And we know that his revelation is complete. We saw that last week, Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and 19. Don't add to and don't take away. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, here is the revelation of Jesus Christ, signifying its completeness. He, he brought a conclusion to the, to the revelation, and it's in the Son that, that that is the idea here uh, that is being expressed as we come to this. 
Uh, the Old Testament is still very relevant. It's, it's for our teaching. It's for our understanding. But the revelation has been completed in the Son. He's, he is the fullness of the revelation. Therefore, he's better. That's, that's the idea. Uh, and, and, and from this, now the author is going to launch into a group of propositions showing how the Son is better, the superiority of the Son. He's going to talk about his person and his activities in this group of propositions that he's going to give in verses, the rest of verse 2 and in verse 3, and then we pick up one in verse 4. Verse 4 is kind of an interesting passage, but anyway, we'll get there in a minute. He says here that, first of all, that he is the heir. He's the heir of all things. That's what he says. That's the first proposition. He says, in these last days, he's spoken through our son, whom he's appointed as the heir of all things. He's the heir of all things. It's a title of dignity. <clears throat> he has a supreme place in the universe. That's what he's saying here. He's the heir of all things. Psalms 2, uh, uh, 6 and 7 reads, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, and I will tell you of the decrees the Lord has said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's, that's the idea here. He's the heir. He's the son. He's the, he, uh, he's the one. When we looked at last week, when we looked at Revelation chapter 5 and 6, we saw the Lamb of God, who's the, tribe, who's the Lion of the tribe of Judah, who was the only one in the entire creation capable of taking the seven-sealed scroll and opening it. He's the eminent one. That's, that's the idea here. He's the heir. And in that one, it pictured him being heir, taking possession as heir. That, that was the picture in, in, in um, Revelation 5 and 6. He was taking his rightful place as heir. Jesus... Uh, <clears throat> Jesus declared in Matthew 28, 18, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me because he is the heir. He's the one in charge. He has all the authority. He's the heir. That's, that's the idea here. In Philippians 2, Philippians 2, Verses uh, 6 through 11. It says this. He, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in hum, uh, human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, uh, uh, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And here we, here we have it. Uh, he is the heir. He has the rightful place. He has been exalted. He is the exalted one. That's the first thing about his person. That far exceeds any, anything else. He's better. Now, secondly, he says, he says that through him, the worlds were made. Speaks of his creatorship. Uh, 
Colossians 1, 16 says, By him all things were created. Uh, Jesus, Jesus is the agency of creation. Uh, John, first, or John 1, 3, uh, in, in that passage, he, he said, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, he, he is the agency by which creation took place in cross-reference 1 Corinthians uh, 6, 8, or 8, 6, excuse me. Note the world here, it's an interesting usage here of terms. Normally, in Scripture, whenever it talks about the universe or the world, it uses the word cosmos. It doesn't use that word here. You use ionis. It means it's the word that we get, uh, it's the word that we get uh, uh, eons from. It means time. He created the expanse of time. Not just the material things that filled it, but the time behind it. How it, it works, it speaks of the order, it speaks of the, the glory of how everything fits together. It doesn't just say he made the mountains and the rivers, but he made the system by which they function. He's included, it includes, it includes everything here. It's everything that makes it function, everything that causes it to work together, everything that causes it, causes, it's the laws of nature. It's the laws of physics. All of those things are part of the creative order that he made. That's, that's, that's what's being expressed here. It's far beyond just the material. It's, it's the whole of it. Psalms 19 one of my favorite psalms, the first half of it talks about the, the uh, general revelation and how the general revelation should, should draw uh, man to God. And in it, it talks about how the sun goes its course across the sky. It, it talks about the orderly system of the universe. That's what this is talking about. That's the, that's the idea that's being expressed here. God did all of that. And incidentally, there's this great promise that we find in Romans 8, 17. He made us joint heirs of all of that with him. What a glorious thought that is. And then, then he goes on, and he talks about how he's better in his work. And he, he starts really with a, a, a view of still of his person in verse 3. But he, he begins by saying this, and he is the radiance of the glory of God. That's what he says, he's the radiance of the glory of God. This is a picture of Jesus Christ as, 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 as one, when we, we see him, we see God. That's what he told his disciples. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Thomas asked to, to see the Father. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen him. That's, 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 that's the idea here. He says he, he's the radiance of his glory. Uh, this is the idea of brightness. The term is used literally of brightness in Acts twenty two eleven. Uh, it speaks of, of shining forth, uh, of brightness, of, and that's all picture of glory is the idea. Uh, God is normally referred to as light. Jesus is the light of the world. That's what he told us in John eight twelve. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall, not, uh, shall have the light of life. Uh, those are words that are all connected with the glory of God. And it says here that that's, that's who Jesus is. Uh, Jesus is his radiance. Uh, 
Some, some contend that it's a reflected radiance. Some contend it's a radi or the radiance of himself. Um, I tend to follow the latter one. Uh, Jesus is God. He is God the Son, and he is therefore glorious, and he therefore shines the glory of the divine person. And I think that's the idea that's wanting to be, uh, be expressed here. Uh, it's also a word that speaks about the presence of God. In Ezekiel uh, 128 and 11:23, it's used to express God is present when this glory is seen, this brightness, this, this radiance shines forth. And that, that's what it's saying here. Uh, we had the radiance of God among us when Jesus walked on the earth. That's, that's, that's the idea. He was the radiant one. He was the one who, who, who showed God to us because that's who he was. And then he goes on to say, not only is he the radiance of God's glory, but he's the exact imprint of his nature. This is an interesting word. He's, a, he's an exact representation of the being is another way this is translated. Uh, the word that is used here, exact representation, <clears throat> is used uh, in a number of ways in, in um, the Greco-Roman world. And it, it's a word that uh, meant to make an imprint on something. Um, its last and major meaning was the imprint of the emperor on a coin. Uh, it bore the emblem of the emperor. It showed the emperor. When he picked up that coin and he looked at it, you know, and it had whoever the emperor was at the time, whether it was Nero or Diocletian or, or Julius, whoever it was, was on that coin. You knew that was the emperor, and this is, this is his image, therefore this is the valid thing. That's the idea. It's not a counterfeit. It's the real deal. It also is used of a sculpture that actually um, is uh, the exact image of, of the uh, individual. And that's how he's using this word here. When we saw Jesus, we saw God. That's what he's saying. He is God. He is the actual imprint of God. But it goes far more than not his looks, but who he is, his nature, his person. Everything about him is divine. That's the idea here. He's not just a copy. He wasn't run through a copy machine and came out the other side. He is the original. And everything that is true of God is true of him. That's what this word is telling us. That's what the author of Hebrews wants you to understand. This Jesus was God in the flesh. And everything about him was divine. It's a powerful, powerful statement that he's making here. John 14, 9. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. John 10, 30. Uh, John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. Also, look at Philippians 2, 6. The whole, the whole idea here is this was when we saw Jesus, we saw God. He walked among us. And therefore, he surpasses all else. And then he has another, he has another interesting phrase here. He goes on and he says, He's a radiance of his glory. He's the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
You know, he told us a little bit ago that he was a creator. He created time and space and everything that's in it. Now he's telling us something a little bit different about it. He's telling us not only did he create it, he maintains it. He keeps it running. He keeps it in working order. You know, I spent my life as a, as a heavy-duty truck mechanic. The last part of it, I stopped using the tools and told other people to do the work. But nevertheless, uh, and, and basically, you know, somebody else manufactured the truck. You know what I mean? Or, you know, whether it was Mac or whether it was Peterbilt or whoever it was, they manufactured the truck. And then they sent it out and you bought it. And it broke. And I fixed it. You know, I, have, I was the one that had to keep it going. Well, Jesus made the universe, and he keeps it going. He didn't need the middleman. He's the one that put the universe in order, and he's the one that keeps it in order. The reason we can walk on this planet is because Jesus keeps gravity working. The reason we can breathe is because he keeps air flowing. Even though we filled it full of smoke. But nevertheless... Jesus did these things. Jesus is the one that keeps it going. He not only created it, he makes it work. And he keeps it working. That's what what he's saying here. He upholds the universe. He sustains it. He carries it along. He maintains it. He supports it. He keeps it all in operation. That's, uh, That's what he's saying here. He's the one that upholds all things by his hand. And then we come to the sixth item in his work and in his person. And this item is probably the one that is most imminently, well, maintaining the universe, creating the universe and maintaining the universe is pretty important because it keeps us planted here. But nevertheless, this one is even more important because he deals with the major problem of sin because the the major problem of man, which is sin, because he says, the next thing he says After making purification for sin, here comes the big one. This is why he came. Uh, This is, he was the only one who could do this. He says, after making purification for sin, here is the heart of the matter for mankind. He purified sin. He brought purification from sin. Sin put man under the death penalty. Jesus removed that penalty. He purified us. Jesus took the penalty for us. 1 John 1.7 The blood of Jesus, His, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. As we go through the book of Hebrews, Jesus, or the author is going to tell us that not only did he purify us from sin, he made propitiation for sin. That is, he turned away the wrath of God from us. He, it literally means to make the face white. It turned the red face white is the, is the idea of propitiation. He turned away anger. He turned away God's anger. In, in 9.28, he's going to tell us that he puts sin away, and it's not remembered. In other words, sin is no more a part of you, and God doesn't remember the past. He doesn't bring it back up. He doesn't throw it up in your face. He bore our sin. He took it on himself is the idea here. He's going to tell us that in 928 also. 
He's going to say that he did that by being the sacrifice for sin, making the atonement in 10.12. That he was the offering, he himself was the offering that resulted in the remission of sin in 10.18. In 9.26, he's going to tell us that he annulled sin. He made it ineffective. For those who put their trust in him. And in nine <clears throat> excuse me, and in nine fifteen, he redeemed us. He bought us out of the slave market of sin. That was no longer uh, no longer are we part of that. He took us out of that. That's the idea of this purification. This word this word is used in Second Peter one um, nine purification. The same word uh, to talk about. He uses as a term that it was the removal of sin. Our lives have been washed through the filter of Jesus Christ. He took he took all the garbage and trash out and took it on himself. That's what he's saying here. This is who Jesus is. This is who our Jesus is. He is the one who purified us, who made us right, who took away the wrath that we saw that's coming for those who don't accept Jesus Christ last week. He took that away. That's gone. We've all had somebody get mad at us one time or another, right? I mean, even me, probably four or five times a day. But anyway, we've all had somebody get mad at us at one time or another. Isn't it nice when they stop being mad at us? Now now take that to the extreme. God's no longer mad at you. His wrath is gone. That's what Jesus did in this purification. He took it all away. He took it all on himself. That's the gospel. Jesus bore our sin and made us right before God. He gave us right standing before God. That's that's the point that he's coming to here. Only Jesus could do that. No other means could do that. No system of works could do it. No good work could do it at all. No right thinking could do it. No positive attitude could do it. No system of rituals could do it. The endless slaying of goats and bulls and rams couldn't do it. I guess I should have put sheep in there. But anyway, that couldn't do it. Only Jesus could do it. And the author here tells us that's exactly what he did. He purified us. He made us whole. He made us pure. He made us complete in the sight of God. That's the picture here. Jesus effected a complete cleansing from sin. Incidentally, Sin is used 25 times. I, I went back to this guy that counts everything. Uh, 25 times the word sin is used in the book of Hebrews. The only book that uses it more is Romans. Roman goes a little bit overboard. It uses it 98 times. But at any rate, well, maybe you can't go too overboard on that. 
Sin is seen as man's main as man's, as man's main problem, and the normal sacrifices that were part of the Jewish system were just totally insufficient. Only Jesus could deal with sin completely and take it away. And that's the point he's making here. And that's what he did. He took it all away. It's no longer affecting us. And then he goes on to say, not only did he take all the sin away, but when he finished taking the sin away, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. That's, that's the next point. Jesus Christ went and sat down at the right hand of God the Father. This is a powerful statement because he, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. The link gives us a picture. It gives us, first of all, a picture of rest because in the Old Testament, one of the things you notice that isn't in the temple are chairs. The priests never sat down. Their work was never done. They didn't get, the, they didn't get the rest until they got a day off, but, I mean, you know, they, they got that rest. But as long as they were working in the temple, they never sat down. They stood up. They walked around. They carried heavy burdens of sacrifices. They dumped the blood out. They dumped the various the elements of the sacrifice. They lit fires. They carried the incense canisters. All of those things they had to do, but they didn't sit down. So this is a significant statement because it's Jesus who later on in this book is going to be described as our high priest. He sat down because his work is done as far as salvation is concerned. Judgment, that's something else. He's going to stand back up for that and get on a horse. But here, salvation is done. It's a completed work. And he's at rest from that work. Our high priest doesn't have to make any more sacrifice. It's done. It's complete. That's what he's saying here. It's a completed work. It, it gives the idea of a, of, a, of a finished work. And then he sat down at the right hand, which is the position of authority. That pictured authority in, in, in the ancient world. To sit on the right was always the honored seat. It was a seat of authority. It was the seat of honor. It was a street seat of prestige. It was the seat where if you were invited to sit there, you'd done something. And that, that's the idea here. Uh, Jesus is seated at the right hand of majesty on high. That's the picture here. He completed his work. It's finished, and he is honored for it. For us, that means our salvation is complete. We are, com- we are safe in him. We are at rest in him. His offering was a better one because it was a complete one. And it saved us to the uttermost. That, that's, the, that's, the, that's the view that's being, being pictured here. Jesus is set down in the place of, of honor, of authority, who had completed the work of purification. Hebrews 10, verse chapter, uh, chapter 10, uh, verse, uh, verse 12. Uh, of course, it's on the next page. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. 
And then it goes on to say, waiting till the time his enemies are made a footstool under his feet. But that's the idea here. It's a completed work. Purification is complete. Salvation is complete. You don't have to worry about tomorrow whether you're saved or not. Because if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are. Because he's seated. And he's not getting back up to save you again. Because he's done it. And it's done. That's, that's, the, that's the picture he wants us to understand here. Uh, once again, Philippians 2.11, that he, he did it so that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's the whole point here. He brings glory, and he is glory. And for us, we are purified, and we have a Savior who is at rest from that work. And we can trust in that. And then, then he goes on to verse 4, and I'm going to just make a couple comments about verse 4. Verse 4 I wasn't originally going to include, but uh, as I got to looking at the text, I thought, well, it really is part of the sentence, but it's also a transition. Verse 4 concludes verses 1 through 3. It brings it to a conclusion. But it also introduces 5 through 14, which is what we're going to be covering in the class next week. And so, so we're going to not touch on the full scope of this verse this morning, but we're just going to focus on one part of it, the concluding part of it. And, and he, says, he says this in verse 4. He says, he says, having become much superior to the angels, which is going to be the subject that he is going to discuss in verses 5 through 14, he, uh, the superiority of Jesus, and literally that word superior that's translated in this uh, translation is in, the, in Greek is the word better. Um, and he's going he's, he's to say, having become much better than angels, as he has the uh, he has inherited more um, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs and that's the summing up of 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 the rest of this book of the rest of uh, this sentence is that is 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 as we come to this this verse um, it's because of his name it's its name and you know there's some debate on exactly what the name is here obviously uh, we know him as Jesus. Uh, he's Jesus. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, I guess, the full title. Um, he's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. All of these names apply to him. Uh, in Revelation, we're told that there's going to be a new name that none of us even know yet. Uh, but it'll re- be revealed at his uh, second coming and setting all things right. But here, it, it's talking about his more excellent name. And I think what we need to understand is the more excellent name that he's talking about is son. He's the son. That's that's the the thing. He's inherited that name because he is the heir. He's the heir of all things. He is the son. It's the sum total of his total person. He is God the son. And in his incarnation, he took that, that became the reality of who he is. And he carries that with him at this point. And that's, that's why he is the heir. He's the son. He's the only son. And he's the heir. And so, so the, the point here is that the reason all of this other stuff fits together, the reason he's better than the prophets, the reason that he, he is... He is the one who could make purification. The reason he is the express 
image and glory of God. All of these items that he's talked about as he's walked through this is because he's the Son. He's the Son of God. He is God the Son. And that's, that's what he wants us to, to focus on here in Ephesians chapter, um, chapter 1, verses, uh, verses uh, 20, uh, 20 and 21. He says, well, let's pick it up at 19. And what is the immeasurable uh, greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he would work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule authority and power and dominion above every name that is named not only in this age but in the age to come and it, and the and Paul is saying here he ranks higher than anything else that's what he's saying uh, he's seated at the right hand he's he is above all power all majesty and his name is supreme among all the names that's what the author of hebrews is saying because he's the son uh, the in philippians philippians chapter 2 uh, verses 9 through 11 once again we already looked at this once but we're going to look again Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above every name, so that at the the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess. Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This This is the thrust that this book is going to express, that Jesus Christ, the heir of all things, the eminent one, the one seated at the right hand of God, the one who made purification for sin, the one who is better than the prophets, has a more excellent revelation than that of the prophets, who, has, who is superior in his person, who is superior in all of his work, who has inherited the name of Son, is seated at the right hand of God, waiting to call us home. And it's him who we worship. The rest of the book is going to go on giving the specifics of how he's better. I hope that uh, somehow this morning you caught a glimpse of the glory of Jesus because that's what this, that's what this introductory uh, part of this book is all about. The author of Hebrews just jumps right into the person of Jesus Christ, his glorious person. And basically he is saying, and it is God who revealed it to us. And because of him, we're assembled here today. And we can come together, and we can worship, and we can praise him because of who he is. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you this morning as we have come to this text. We thank you. We thank you for, for the author of Hebrews, and we thank you that, uh, uh, that we don't have to know who he is, but we know this is your word. We know that this is the breathed out word of God uh, through, the, uh, through, uh, through your spirit. That we can, we can come to this text and we can look into it and we can know more about Jesus because, as the song says, more about Jesus would I know. That's, that's the idea here. Uh, that we would know him more fully. Uh, that we could appreciate him more fully and we could understand more fully all that he did on our behalf. And Father, we thank you especially that sin has been dealt with in Jesus. And we thank you that 
that he is the one we look to as the creator and the sustainer of all things, that we know we can put our trust wholly in him because he's finished the work and he's seated in the place of honor. And we would thank you and we would give you the praise in his name. Amen.